and um, I rolled out of bed. Uh, I get up at four for Grace and Granite mornings just to get in my normal prayer time, and I was sitting there about 15 minutes before it was time to uh, time to leave, and I thought, wow, I get to get to start my day with you all, and um, my heart literally filled with joy, and I thought, what a privilege to be able to gather together with brothers uh, in Christ. Um, I am uh, about to head for family vacation. Sounds like I got a little whistle here on my mic. Um, I'm getting ready to head for family vacation, and whenever uh, I do, I get up early in the morning, and so, you know, everybody's in a beach house. We go to Outer Banks every year, and... um, leaving right after service on Sunday morning after I preach. And so you, you can kind of see what people do first thing in the morning. You know, a lot of people are out on their balconies or, or whatever else. But you'll see a lot of houses, the first thing that, that people do whenever they get up in the morning is they turn the TV on. And you've got whatever, Fox News or CNN or whatever, you know, in the background. And I'm not slamming on TVs. I have one and direct TV and all of that good stuff. But the point being, what you start with in the morning, how vital that is to set the trajectory for your day. And every Tuesday, we get to start the morning together in the Word of God with other brothers uh, in Christ. Um, all of us up and, uh, and tired, but uh, committed to the Bible and committed to Christ and, uh, and his church. So uh, today we're finishing the foundational convictions. So we always go back in the very beginning. First two lessons, we cover the foundational convictions. Again, just why we do grace and granite. What's our purpose? Um, and uh, so hopefully you all got your coffee. Uh, the Starbucks opens at 530 and they don't do pre-orders. McDonald's doesn't do coffee anymore. Michael was telling me this morning, so our faithful uh, uh, coffee mule shows up there at 5.30. They have to brew it, and then they have to get here. And so I'll let you all fellowship a little bit because we got the coffee here right about uh, right about 6 o'clock. A couple of you said, oh, if we don't have coffee, I'm in trouble this morning. And I said, I'm, I'm right there with you. Uh, open your Bibles to Psalm 14. Psalm 14, we'll start in God's songbook, and then we'll, we'll pray, we'll watch a video, and then we'll, we'll finish up our foundational convictions lesson this morning, Psalm 14. This is a psalm of David, and it's probably a very familiar verse whenever we We start, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt and have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Now, what what does that verse remind you of? Can you think of a New Testament passage? Yeah, Romans 3 quotes Psalms a number of places. At least here, there's none that does good. And notice the fool says to himself, he he says something, and notice where he says it. He says it in his heart, that there is no God. 
and then n- notice what that leads to or, or, or what accompanies that. A denial of God in the heart makes you a fool. That's where it begins. But then there's corruption. There's wicked deeds that are being committed. So inward leads to outward. Um, and then look at the Lord's response in verse 2. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's any who understand, who seek after God. And what's the answer? What's he, what does God find? Verse 3. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of, the wicked, uh, of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread. For God is with the righteous generation who would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that sal- the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. And we are rejoicing this morning because it has, he has. When the Lord restores the captive people, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. Let's pray. Father, what a grim and dark picture your word paints of us prior to salvation. I always think of 1 Thessalonians where Paul says the unsaved person, what we were before you opened our eyes, we were like a, an inebriated man groping in the, the blackness and in, in dark. Um, as hard as it is to see without any light whatsoever and yet being drunk on top of that, not even having, clearly not having eyesight, not being able to see in the darkness, but then not even having the, uh, your, your full faculties uh, to be able to grope in the dark. It's a picture of somebody who's unsaved. Romans 3 here. In our hearts, we were rebellious. Um, in our actions, we were, we were wicked. And um, we fell short even of what you would, you would ask us to do. It doesn't mean that we, we, we always did um, the worst that we could do. Does it mean that the things that we did sometimes didn't come across as, as, uh, as good from a human level? But our motives were corrupt. And we didn't seek after you. You found us. We are so thankful for that. Thank you for this, this book. Thank you that you have changed us in, inside. And because you've done that, we now have new desires. And new desires lead to new actions. And so we just pray you would feed us this morning. Help us, Lord, to be men of grace, knowing that it all comes from you. And, and yet men of granite, strong in the faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to start with a little video before we we get, and you've seen it before, but every time I watch it, I would guess you've seen it before. We've showed it before last year. Every time I watch it, though, uh, I'm reminded and get excited, so we'll watch it again. to think about it. Pages and pages of God, his thoughts, his words, 
his heart right there, just a few inches away. I can carry it with me everywhere I go, read it whenever I want. When we open the Bible, what do we see? We see God himself in this book. We meet him here or we don't meet him, not with any hope of friendship. Reading the Bible is one of the most important things we can ever do. It's more valuable than anything we own, sweeter than anything we have ever eaten. It is literally more important than breathing. But that's not always what we see and feel when we open our Bible. Our weak, tired, distracted eyes look and all we see is a lifeless, boring portrait on the wall. But it's not a portrait. It's a window. It doesn't hang lifeless in an old frame on the wall. It breaks through the wall into another world. The real world. The lasting world. The better world. And through this window shines a divine light that changes everything around us. We all know that the road to knowing God is not easy. Discipline and resolve are important, but they can carry you only so far. A few days, a week, maybe a month. For the long run, we need something stronger, more compelling than discipline and resolve. There are too many traps along the path, too many hurdles. we don't read the Bible is that we don't want to read the Bible. We don't see joy, peace, and life when we see that leather binding on our shelf. We see a wall, not a window. The boring portrait, not the never-ending beauty beyond. So we put it off, leave it shut, and move on. Stay in bed, and we miss the miracle. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, loves to speak light into hearts and minds. God wrote a book, and with his book, these words in front of us, he wakens our dead, bored souls he frees us from bondage to sin, from desires that rob us of life. He comforts the depressed, inspires the discouraged, guides the confused. He empowers us to make our lives count for his cause in the world. He satisfies us completely and forever with words, his words. read my Bible tomorrow? Where else would I go? How else will I know Him? How else will I prepare myself to enjoy Him forever? Yes, 
spend the rest of my life looking out of this window, watching, waiting for another sight of him, another miracle, another glimpse of my God. thought that God wrote a book and then in writing that book he he wrote it he gave it to you and I that we might be able to open it up and and read it that video is full of of just of concepts that in the scriptures I mean you you live you 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 see the things around you you interact with 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 people but, but that's a limited vantage point. It's a limited view. And he, he says when you open the Bible, it's like a window. You're able to see rightly. You're, you're able to, to see what's really going on, what, what's, in, what's eternal. Um, you're able to see beyond this, this life and, and, and even rightly interpret this life. The Bible rightly interprets reality. So it's a window he doesn't use this analogy, but, but, but we have before. It's, it, it's like a set of, of glasses. It, it helps you see. Because in the fall, you were, you were corrupted. All mankind was corrupted. We know we die physically. We're, we're not getting better. We, we look in the mirror every morning or we feel the aches and pains that, that, that are there. I mean, I think almost... Everyone, even unbelievers, know they're, they're not getting better and death is coming. That's an evidence of the fall. In fact, that's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15. The, the glory of the resurrection is, is, is contrasted with the, uh, you know, with the dishonor of death. Like at death, when they put a body in the ground, it's the ultimate um, confirmation that there was sin and a fall. Like the, the, the glorious body that God created for mankind, made in his image, uh, has, has met this end. And it's an inglorious end. I mean, here it is. The body's dead. It's going in the ground. The worms are going to eat it. It's going to disintegrate. But then the promise of the resurrection is this same body is going to come up out of the ground uh, triumphant over the, over the fall and over, and over death. The fall brought death, brought sickness in, into the world. The fall also brought spiritual death. So, so you and I were made in God's image to commune with him. Um, he walked with Adam in the cool of the day, fellowshiped with, with him. But after the fall, there's this, there's the, there's this casting out of the, of the garden. And you have to come to God in a different way. There's an offering that was made and the whole Cain and Abel thing that's, that's, that's going on there. The fall brought spiritual death. You're, you're, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 says. So there's, there's, a, there, there's no longer communion with God. Um, so there's a physical death that's, that comes spiritually. But then there's something else. You, you were corrupted in mind. Um, you can't think right. You can't rationalize uh, um, correctly. You, your mind is broken. It, it can only, it's limited. It can only go so far. It, it cannot understand God without God coming to you and helping you. 
And the way in which he did that was the scriptures. So that's what Romans 1 and Psalm 19 tells us, that that there's an evidence of God all around us in creation, um, even as an unbeliever. I didn't think I came from a monkey. I frankly thought evolution was stupid. I thought, this is just crazy, even as an unbeliever. Um, But... What, whatever your perspective is, you, you know there's something bigger, there's something more than you. There's an evidence of, 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 of God in creation. But for an unbeliever, Romans 1 says that's only enough to condemn them um, because then we make a God in our own image, realizing that. But the scriptures were given to tell us who that God is and tell us who we are and how to be right with him and and so the scriptures help us in, in that way. They, they are our, 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 our guide. They're a, they're a lamp. They're a light, the song says. And, and it's a tool. Without the Bible, um, we're wasting our time here this morning. Without the Bible, it doesn't matter when you get up in the morning. It doesn't matter if you went to Grace and Granted every morning. It doesn't matter... Uh, if I was the greatest speaker on the planet, uh, none of it matters. The Bible is the instrument that the Spirit uses in order to save, open eyes, and also sanctify, bring light. So our goal is to be men of grace and granite. We're We're not women. God created us unique and different, um, distinct, and, and, and as men, we have specific responsibilities given, given by God to lead our families and to lead in the world and to lead in the, in the church. And in order to do that, you need the Bible. So we're here gathered as men um, to be men of grace and, and granite. Even as I prayed, we're not men because we're, we're, we're strong. We're men because we're we're weak. We realize our spiritual weakness. We, we need the grace of God. And so God's grace comes to us and saves us, but then, then that grace doesn't make, doesn't make more spiritual weakness. It, it makes strength, and that's where the granite comes in. And you need the Bible for both of those. The Bible reveals the grace of God, and through the Bible you can have the granite of God in your, in your life. So if you're not there, open to series 1. Study one. We're looking at foundational convictions. Our tool is the Bible. This book just guides us, helps us as we as we go along. And so we were saying the the purpose is to uh, of this series is to drown, uh, drive home some foundational convictions that will give you courage to stand on the truth and vigorously apply it to your, your life. Long before you apply the Bible to someone else, you need to apply it to your own heart. Um, so you need to have a working biblical literacy. And that video was to motivate you. God wrote a book. Um, there are no shortcuts to developing an understanding of, of Scripture, the broad categories, or knowing specific passages in your, in your Bible. It's not merely an academic exercise. You have to believe it and know it and memorize it and meditate on it. I mean, ultimately, men, you do what you want to do. 
You may say you're too busy. I may say I'm too busy. I'm too tired. I'm too whatever. But put something in front of us that we genuinely want to do and we'll throw aside how bad we feel. We'll give up sleep. We'll do whatever. I love to hunt. I'll get out of bed at 3.30 in the morning. I'll go tromp around and get chiggers and ticks all over me. I'll sit in the cold in order to have a five-minute experience where a deer comes under the stand that I can kill it. I'll do a lot to do that. You will train for a marathon. Whatever your hobby is, you will do a lot of things in order to gain what you want. And so you do what you want to do, what you desire to do. Now, prior to salvation, you have no desire to read the Bible. You have no desire to know God. If you do, it's probably for selfish purposes and selfish means. So salvation at its core, at its base level, God changes our desires. He changes our want-tos. We now want God. We now hunger after the Word like a newborn baby, um, the Scripture says. You, you have new desires. Those are implanted by the, by the Spirit of, of God. But now you have to act on those. Desire. So if you have no desire for church, no desire for the Bible, you're always kind of dragging yourself along on a guilt trip, you probably need to see whether those, those genuine desires of salvation are, are in your heart. But if they're there, you still have the flesh, you still have the world, you still have the devil, so you, you, have, to, you have to fight against that. But ultimately, you do what you, you want to do. Um, and so, you have to plan and then act. Um, that begins with a working biblical literacy. It's not easy, but it is very, very rewarding. Um, there's all kinds of dangers. We talked about the digital age and how we don't sit and ponder like the Puritans once did. Secondly, you have to have a right perspective of, of, of leadership. Um, that's number two on page two. You have to cling to the scriptures. You have to avoid viewing leadership as, as, as mobilizing people or organization. Um, you have to apply the word to life's hardest questions. That's number three. Take the truth and practically work it out, wring it out. You hear his, his analogy of if you just leave the Bible there, it looks like a, looks like a, a, a dead picture on the wall rather than a window. You can have a Bible. You can even open it. Come to church, and yet it's just, it's just a book. You're not engaging it. You engage with the window. You come to the window. You open the window. You look out the window. You examine things on the other side of the, of the wall. That, that's what you do with the, do with the truth, including the, the hard things. Young pastors, myself included, whenever I was younger, um, there's a, there's, a, there's a level of concern whenever you preach something that, that people get upset about. I don't want to... It's not that you're a coward. You just don't want to offend people. Um, you know, don't want to be a stumbling block. There may be good motives there. But the longer that you preach, the longer that you teach, you actually realize that when people get stirred up, that, that's a good thing. It's what you want. Sometimes the Bible makes you mad. Sometimes it, uh, the preacher makes you mad because he actually preaches the truth. But what does that do? It then, you, then you go to the Scriptures and you start digging. Is what he just said true? And, and it's engaging in it. 
need to engage in the Bible at the, at the heart level because that's where true change happens. And then you make the outward applications. We talked last time about number four, know how to help others develop convictions. Convictions are beliefs which drive your life, which you would, you would die. You know I'm in the middle of this um, church history, these little vignettes that we're doing, Scripture, and then it being illustrated in church history, and we're going to do another one this coming Sunday. And, and the, the man we'll look at this Sunday is coming out of the... He's part of the Marian martyrs, the four years when Bloody Mary burned over 400 Protestants at the stake in, in England during the English Reformation. And we'll talk about what these men died for. It was It was a... Conviction. Uh, conviction is not something that you'll just easily give up whenever somebody somebody comes along that you might you, you might be embarrassed if they knew what you believed. I mean, it, it, it's something that that you'll take to, to the grave. It's something that you'll, you'll you'll stand on. You need those kind of stakes in your life. What are the non-negotiables in your life? Now, there are doctrines. There are convictions and then there are preferences. And sometimes people get those all mixed up. Women wearing pants is not on the same level as the deity of Christ, okay? The type of music that you listen to is not on the same level as the sufficiency of Scripture. So, so don't, don't get that all messed up. You know, the, the fundamentalism that started well, that, that's where they got messed up. They, you know, it, they, they, they leveled everything out. Everything is a number one no matter what it is. And now everything's a number one. You have first truths and second truths. You have things that are gospel issues. Like if you believe these things, you're damned. You're outside of Christ. Those are the things that you should die for. Okay, These, these preferential things, according to Romans 14, that may violate your conscience or you may even feel strongly about, but your eschatology is not going to send you to heaven or hell. It's not that it's unimportant. You have to know what Scripture says, but, but you're a brother, and I'm a brother in, in those type of, of areas. So, so know what, what those are, but what are the non-negotiables? Those are the things with, that, that, you, that you build your life on and you'd be willing to, to die on. We say here it's the sufficiency of Scripture, the power of the gospel, the lordship of Christ and the centrality of the local church. Those are our convictions as a church. The, the sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible is the... Is, I couldn't hear what you said. Well, that's because I'm talking to them, not you. <laughs> Siri's talking to me. Um, the sufficiency of Scripture is, is the... You, you hear the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture... We say sufficiency of Scripture because I think it encompasses all of those other things. Like, this is our sole authority. This sole authority is inspired by God. Verbal, plenary inspiration. Every single word, down to the grammar, is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. This book comes from from God. It is clearly inerrant. It it has absolutely no error in it whatsoever. It's it's, it's an infallible source of truth. It it doesn't just contain truth. It is truth. 
The liberals will say, well, the Bible contains the Word of God, but I wouldn't say it is the Word of God. No, it is the Word of God. It, everything in the Bible is sufficient, sufficient in all those things. It's all you need for life and godliness. Everything that you need for spiritual life is wrapped up in this, in this book. That's a conviction. That's the reason we do what we do. It's the reason we preach expositionally. It's the reason we labor in order to get it right. That's the reason that we build our ministry. The methodology of our ministry is based on the, the theology that comes from Scripture. And Scripture then has the, is, the, is the ultimate authority. Um, is that a conviction in, in your life? How do you know? Well, you'll know if somebody begins to tamper with the scriptures or you'll know if you start looking at your life, the practices in your life, are they actually based on scripture or are they based on some other authority? The power of the gospel? We believe the gospel alone is the power of God unto salvation. That speaking the gospel, it, 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 the fact that it's news, it's something that God has already done. The gospel itself is what God himself uses to save those he's going to save. You proclaim the gospel to people, and there's only two responses to the human heart. I understand you can go to the parable of the soils and say, you know, well, they may, you may have a temporary response, and to, but there's only two responses to the scriptures, either conversion or hardening. When the gospel is proclaimed... When people hear the Bible, then God either uses that to waken them, to, to save them, to, to draw them to himself. Scripture uses a lot of, of, of analogies, but ultimately the gospel is there. There's power in the gospel in order to save people. Or you set under the gospel, and the more you set there, the more your heart hardens. Your heart's hardening. You're, you're, you're hearing the words of your creator, and in your sin, it, it's striking a blow on your heart. And you're, you're resisting it. You're resisting it. And every time the gospel comes, you resist it. And it comes again, and you resist it. And when you resist it, which is what, the, what every human heart does until the Lord empowers it and opens the eyes, you develop that callous there. You're, you're hardened. The gospel itself is the power of God into salvation. We believe that. We don't believe in gimmicks or anything else. We also believe in the Lordship of Christ. We would die for the Lordship of Christ. We do not believe that Jesus is your get-out-of-hell-free card and that you can just pray a sinner's prayer and then go live however you want to live as if that is the gospel. We're not saying that the minute that you come to Christ, you're going you're gonna to get up off of your knees or however it happens with everything completely fixed in your life and perfectly sanctified. You're, you're going to have issues because you've been broken and the power of sin needs to come out of your, your life. But they proclaimed in the book of Acts that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. We believe that Jesus is God. And that part of the gospel is realizing that and submitting to him in that way. And we believe in the church. We believe in the power of the church. We believe that the church is where God gathers people in order to sanctify them and that it's what God's doing on the earth. In the, in the church, you need to have convictions. And those convictions you have to stand on. You also have to have the right perspective of yourself. Number five. So this is new. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 3, 5 through 9. If you want to be a man of grace and granite, you have to, right, have, to have the right perspective of yourself. 
a lot of bad theology comes from a high view of man, too high view of man. People start with man being way better than they, than they, they think that, that, that he is. Um, why do bad things happen to good people? That's what the unbelievers say, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, the fallacy there is there's none good. No, not one. How could God be, be a good God and, and wipe out all of the Canaanites, men, women, children, everybody? I could, don't know if I could believe in a God like that. I heard a guy, a story of a guy saying that this past week, counseling a couple that was deal, they were dealing with, a, with somebody who was, who was saying that. I just don't think I could believe in that kind of God who would, who would kill women and children. And where, Where's the fallacy there? Well, you're sitting there. What do you think? The, the Canaanites, they're sitting there. There's like good little women and children. Oh, I just love God. I just want to come to God. Uh, I wish somebody would come and tell me about God. That's what the Canaanites are doing. They're waking up every morning, thumbing their nose in God's face in rebellion against Him, not caring anything about Him. Well, that changes the perspective, doesn't it? What about the flood? Genesis 6. Every thought's continually evil. That, that's the picture that God gives of mankind. So now when you see that picture, it, it, it puts God in a different perspective, doesn't it? Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. When you understand who you are and the grace that, that God's brought to you because of who you are, you, you get that you're, a, you're just a slave. You're just a servant. Know that God can, for His greater glory, minimize or maximize our usefulness at any time. I wasn't at Cornerstone Baptist where 36 or 38 people voted on me because I was... was um, being restricted in ministry... And I didn't come to Timberlake where there's how many of our people that are here because I've arrived and I've gotten that much better in ministry. And it's not like my goal or any other goal is to, is to then, you know, man, I'm going to outpace Timberlake and I'm going to go to Grace Community Church or wherever. I'm going to go to the 1,000, 1,500-member church. You're just a slave. Whether it's here or whether it's at Cornerstone or whether it, wherever it is, God's the one who determines where he places his servants. You're just, just a humble servant of the master. You go out into the field every day and you hoe the corn that he's given you. He's given you a row, very clearly. And he may say, take care of these four stalks, these four stalks of corn, or this whole row, or this whole field, whatever it is. He's the one who determines that. And if you have the right perspective of yourself, you don't care. You don't care whether you have four, four ears or 400 ears you, 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 or uh, stalks. You're just thankful to be, be a servant of the master. Well, that comes with the right perspective of yourself. Look at C. We should never take ourselves too seriously. We're merely slaves who believe and stewards of what belongs to to God, Luke seventeen ten, are unworthy slaves. First Corinthians four two, we're we're stewards. 
We should realize that God is the ultimate examiner of the, of the motives. Um, I can't even tell if my motives are, are right apart from, you know, from God. So have the right perspective of yourself. That will, it's a foundational conviction. My favorite quote, one of my favorite quotes from Spurgeon. Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him. For if you, for you are far, be, uh, far worse than he thinks you to be. If he charges you falsely at some point, yet be satisfied. For if he knew you better, he might change the, the accusation and you would be no gainer for the correction. If you have a moral portrait painted and it is ugly, be satisfied. For it is only needs a few blacker touches to be closer to the truth. Have the right perspective of self. Have the right perspective of longevity. Teach others to stay at it. Be, be faithful for the, for the long term. Don't fall for fads and gimmicks. Don't believe Satan's lies concerning perceived influence. Stay away from the love of money and that, that can come with, with, with influence. We, we live in a society where everything is condensed. We get impatient with microwave popcorn, right? I mean, one of the things that my dad still does, I can remember growing up, is he made popcorn on the stove, corn oil in a pan, still see him sitting there in his white T-shirt and his pajama bottoms doing this. He still does that for my, for my kids whenever we, we go. It takes a long time, a lot longer. You're sitting there doing two and a half minutes in the microwave, and you're 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 weary about a minute and a half. When's this going to be done? Problems are solved in forty-five minute, you know, thirty-minute sitcoms. You see the beginning and the end of a life in watching a watching a movie. Um, everybody wants something quick, and they don't want to put any effort in it. Gone are the days where where it's it's honorable for a man to start as a as an apprentice in something and work years and years honing a skill and a craft to where he becomes a journeyman and then he becomes a you know a, a master carpenter or whatever it is. I mean, think of the hours that placed that's placed in. It. No, no, no. I want it now. I want it fast. I just, I just, you know, it, just inject the Bible in me. Tell me what I need to, need to believe. I want a twenty-minute sermon. I want, I want to go to seminary. I want to get my my piece of paper, and then I'm going to go be a world changer. I mean, wherever it is, it's it's everywhere, and, and you have to reject all of that. You have to have the right perspective of longevity. You, you're an oak tree. You grow over a long period of time. Sanctification happens over, over years and over decades of sitting under the truth. The water table raises. Don't view sanctification as lightning bolt strikes. I sit in under the sermon, and the last five minutes of the sermon, that's when God's going to strike somebody with a lightning bolt. There's a moment where God opens eyes. There are times when God strikes with lightning bolts, but that's not the norm. The norm is you come, you hear, 
you, you hear the truth, and then you practice the truth, and then you come and hear the truth again. You hear the truth again. It's like layers of lacquer over and over and over, and it gets deeper and deeper, or like rain that falls, and then the water table under the ground raises, raises, and, and you grow. That's the picture of the, the Christian life. So have, have that kind of perspective of, of, of longevity. Um, don't be a shooting star that others gaze at. You want to be a freight train. You want to start slow. You want to build. You want to build in intensity. Because a shooting star is just something that people gaze at, and then it, it just fizzles out. Freight train is something that builds, and it goes from one point to the other, and it takes people with them. People can, can ride along on that, that kind of life. That's biblical Christianity, not fits and, and, and starts. Um, number seven, have the right perspective of influence. What does it mean to be a man of God or a man used by God or a man of, of grace and and granite. Have the right perspective of influence. You're to be a leader. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, number one, men must not measure influence in the church on a superficial level. You can't evaluate it by numbers or perceived influence. Such external and often fluctuating dynamics are not reliable, not a reliable measure of God-blessed ministry. Um, I can remember my pastor telling the story of when he first came to to Red House. This is the church where they used to probably remember this. The two boards. Behind the pulpit on one side were the three hymns that were going to be sung, the numbers in the hymnal, and the other side was the numbers for Sunday school, the numbers for church. And one of the deacons said to him, Well, Pastor Joe, you, you, you did it. You got us over a hundred. First time since you've been a pastor. He said, Don't give me credit for that because then you'll blame me whenever it drops below a hundred. Well, you obviously want the gospel to go to everyone. You want as many people as possible to give worship to the, to, to the Lamb, but, but numbers in and of themselves are meaningless as far as what's really cooking in somebody's heart. Um, it's not that superficial. Thousands of people I can show you churches all over the United States where there are thousands of people gathered every Sunday. And I don't know if there's any believers whatsoever in their numbers. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4 talks about the time when they'll, people will not endure sound doctrine, but they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And if audience approval makes particular teachers popular, the church will always assume that God is blessing gifted teachers and spiritually hungry people, but superficial evaluations such as church size and popularity are no affirmation of God's blessing. It may be merely the result of good old-fashioned consumerism. Audiences may crowd an auditorium but desire shallow sermons by clever communicators, and teachers may assume 
great giftedness and blessing given the, the crowds that follow, but their shallow preaching delivers the, the, cl- the crowd's already desire. Look at B. We're talking about the right perspective of influence. So, so what, what is influence? Where should you look if it's not numbers? All spiritual influence flows from godly character. Open your Bibles to Psalm 15. When somebody gets there, read that for me. Psalm 15, 1 through 5. If you're reading your psalm on the day, you're going to come on this tomorrow, so you get to read it twice. Don't wake up in the morning and say, I read it yesterday. Go ahead. Who may abide? Who may dwell? Who may fellowship with God? Someone who walks with integrity, works righteousness, and speaks truth in their in their heart. They they live their life in, in in integrity. They they work righteous things. They do righteous things, and then they they speak truth within their heart. It's not just an outward thing. It's a it's an inward thing. It's spiritual influence grows from godly character. That's a summary of godly character, and men must have integrity in their hearts. The force and credibility of a man's influence is directly related to how consistently he strives after godliness when no one else is around. Who are you when no one is watching but Christ is who you really are and nothing more? Integrity means being the same person on the inside that we are on the outside. And sometimes that's, that's embarrassing, isn't it? I mean, why do we not want people to know what we really are or put the, our best foot forward? Because, because we know <laughs> what we really are, and we don't want them to know. Jerry Falwell said years ago, if everybody knew you like God knew you, there wouldn't be any bragging going on. The summary of what's stated here. So what, how do you gain this kind of integrity, godly character? All godly character flows from a life of humility and, and faith. Now, now tie all this together. You have to have the right perspective of influence. You want to be used by God. Uh, uh, well, it, it's not going to come by, by, by the externals. All spiritual influence. If you really want to be used by God, you, you want to influence others for Christ, that, that comes from godly character, developing godly character, which happens over time. Mushrooms spring up very quickly, and they grow in manure. But an oak tree takes a long period of time, and it, it's watered. It's, it's Psalm 1, go back and read there. It, and it, it, it takes a long time to develop, but it's strong. All godly character flows from a life of humility and faith. 
Not knowledge. Knowledge is good. But it flows from a life of humility and, and faith. God gives grace to the humble. So if you contrast Matthew 23 to, to Luke 18, Matthew 23 is the Jesus speaking to the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees. They, they love being up front. They, they love being heard. They, they, they love to be, to be looked at versus the, the publican. The tax collector stood far away. He, he wouldn't even look, you know, beating his breast, asking for mercy. There's a, there's a contrast between somebody who's self-oriented and somebody who genuinely has, has humility. You want to develop godly character, focus on humility. See yourself rightly. So how do I get humility? Well, start looking at God. You get a, you get a, a good view of God from the Scripture. That will humble you. Then go to your own depravity. Study a systematic theology about your depravity. That, that'll give you a good view of yourself, develop humility. We deserve nothing. Salvation is a gift. When, and when we, we, we see ourselves rightly, we respond rightly. And God uses those who are cultivating particular character qualities on a consistent basis. He he looks to those who are humble and contrite in heart and who tremble at his word when, when they, they, they learn the truth. That, that's a, it's another picture of humility. Genuine humility and faith are then measured by faithfulness to Christ. You want influence? It comes from character. Where does character come from? It comes from humility and faith. Faith is your believing response to God's promises, your believing response to the word, not, you know, putting your prayer helmet on and getting super psyched up. I'm really sincere. I'm feeling it right now. I have faith. That's not faith. You may be very sincere. That could be just raw emotionalism. Faith is, this is the objective truth of Scripture. This is what God says. I believe it and I act on it. It's your believing response to something objective that God has declared in His Word about Himself, about you, about what you do. The Bible doesn't just tell you what to do. The majority of the Bible tells you what to think. To think about God. The Bible has do's and don'ts, but if you think that's all it is, it's a book of do's and don'ts, you're not thinking rightly about Scripture. Your mind is broken, so God has to tell you how to think rightly about Him, about the world, about everything. And then do you believe that? Do you then respond to that? Do you live based upon that. that. That's your believing response. That's faith. And that's something that God empowers you to be able to do as a, as a believer. So then how do you know whether you have humility and faith? Humility, you know, humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, you know, coming under Him, yielding. Well, it's measured by faithfulness. Meaning, you can tell it's operating in your life. How do you tell whether humility and faith is operating in your life? Well, you're, you're persevering in holy living. Love for God is demonstrated in obedience. Your loyalty to Christ in, in all these circumstances. You'll be tested today. Your loyalty to Christ. In your heart, maybe others. It's not just the proverbial water cooler where someone's going to make a statement. I can remember being a young believer and working for Anthem and a physician who was on our board of directors, one of the founders, 
co-founders of the company, really important guy. I'm in my 20s. I just came to Christ. I go to his doctor's office uh, in order to get him to sign a contract, and we're in there. And somehow we got on the topic of, you know, of, of God, probably brought it up. And he said, yeah, I was an altar boy growing up. I did kind of the God thing, the Catholic Church thing. But, you know, but I just couldn't believe that that whole Genesis story. You know, I mean, you know, those mythical figures of Adam and Eve. I mean, these, you know, you don't believe in that nonsense, do you? What are you going to say in that moment? You know? And thankfully, I said, yeah, actually, I do. <laughs> I do believe. And he looked at me like, you know, are you kidding me? I was like, no. Surely believe it. I believe that God is going to take me to heaven and preserve me from hell after I die. I've never been there. I mean, that's what he says in his word. And I can surely believe that that's how he created things. It's just, just maybe that simple. But I can remember having the tension in my heart and giving thanks to God afterwards. I could tell you plenty of other stories where I capitulated, failed. But in those moments, what do you do whenever you fail and, and, and stumble? How, how do you recover from that? You, know, you can have faithfulness even in that, but you'll be tested. You might be tested in your heart. Nobody's going to say that, put the knife to your throat and say, do you believe the Bible? Will you deny Christ? You're tempted to look. You're tempted to, you know, to want something that, that you shouldn't. And in those, those heart battles that, that are there, you, you have to... Persevere in holy striving and, and loyalty to Christ. That's where loyalty to Christ comes in in all circumstances. And then trustworthiness in, the, in stewardship of serving the Lord. This is what God's given me to do. God's given me the task to go get coffee every single Tuesday morning for, for Grace and Granite over and over and over. I get, the ta- I get the privilege of being at church on Sunday morning before anybody else is and unlocking all the doors. I mean, what a gift that is. I get to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord, proverbially. What a, what a privilege it is to serve God. Whatever your stewardship is, whatever God is, is placed in your care, you're trustworthy there. You, you serve the Lord. You're faithful. What matters supremely, and here's our motto for Grace and Granite, C on page 5, what matters supremely is that men know the truth, live the truth, proclaim the truth, and disciples, disciple others in the truth. Now, what's the common denominator in all of those statements? Truth. Know the truth. It's not just enough to know it. You have to live it. It's not just enough to know it and live it. Preach the gospel and use words if necessary. It's a nonsensical statement. Of course, you should live out the gospel. But preaching the gospel doesn't come from how you live. Preaching the gospel needs to proclaim a message, words, news. Now, don't go around proclaiming that news if you're living like the devil, but you need to to get your life in, in order. But you have to know the truth and you have to live the truth. Then you proclaim the truth. Know it, live it in your own life, and then proclaim it, and then bring others along and 
and disciple them. True ministries, the ministries that you want to be part of, are committed to Bible exposition, leadership development, shepherding, genuine shepherding of people, in sin, out of sin, in the hard times, discipling, bringing people along, helping them understand what God has said, how to apply it in their lives, holy living, and a biblical philosophy of of ministry. What they practice, what they do, is clearly tied to the doctrines of Scripture. Ezra 7.10 must be the mantra of your heart, and the order is deliberate. Study the text, practice the text, teach the text. In the development of leadership within the body of Christ, it is God alone who gives the influence, and He alone determines the scope and the and the breadth. Eight. Have a grasp on practical ministry. Take self-inventory. Where do you serve? How do you serve? Are you involved in Bible study? Are you engaging in friendships? Are you discipling anyone? Are you being discipled? Are you in the flow of ministry life, learning about others' lives? Do you sacrifice your time, your energy, your your resources? Do you pray for others? You need to be using your gifts, even if you're not completely sure how, and get busy serving. And finally, be a student. Be a student of the times. Be a student of... Prevailing error, church history, particular needs. Be a student of the truth so that you're able to persuade men from the scriptures. Be a student of tested principles. Fear the Lord and wisdom and Ecclesiastes and disciplined habits and, and critical thinking. Those are the foundational commitments to our lesson. Now next week, whenever we, we gather... We're going to start talking about ecclesiology, and um, we will begin on page 241. That's how far along we, we are. So, series 13, study one, which church is God's will for me? So, if you want to read that ahead of time... You can, we'll be in that for a couple weeks at least. So, ecclesiology. Any comments, questions, statements before we close? All right, gentlemen. God wrote a book, and you have a copy of it in your lap or on your phone or wherever it is. Um, Don't leave it on the shelf. Don't hang it on the wall. Look through that window at life. It will transform you. You'll be full of joy. Um, and the more that you do that over and over, you'll become a man of grace and granite, and the Lord will use you. Um, and you might be able to bring Him glory through your, through your work. Father, we love you. We praise you. We ask that you would help us today. I pray that you would go with each one of us as we have challenges. Um, And uh, we go to work. May we bring you great glory. Great glory to Christ. We ask it all in his name. Amen.